So this morning we're carrying on with our series B. And uh, if you'd like to catch up with any of the previous sermons, you can find them on our website in the media section. Um, Last week, we explored the meaning of being in Christ and how that is the essence of the good news. That rather than offering just a new set of beliefs or a new experience of God or a new way of life, Jesus came to offer us his self. Rather than a way for us to one day become good enough before God, Jesus came to make us good enough before God, to change who we are now. Today we're going to explore what it means to grow up into who we are in Christ. The thing is, we're not only human beings, but we're humans becoming. We're constantly being shaped. Every person is in the process of being shaped into a certain kind of character. Now, the original meaning of character, I think Drew mentioned this before, the original meaning of character was a stamping tool which made an exact imprint or engraving, a faithful representation of the person or thing that it uh, represented. Everyone has a character. The question is, what character do we have? What are our distinctive qualities? What impression do you leave on the world? What kind of person are you? These verses that we read in Luke they tell us a little bit about what God requires or expects of our character. So if you look back to verses 27 to 38, what does Jesus say will be exhibited in the people that belong to him? And just in this passage, he mentions, he's he's speaking to his disciples and he says, loving enemies, doing good to those that hate you, blessing those that curse you, praying for those that mistreat you, suffering violence without retaliation, not begrudging things which are stolen from you, giving to all that ask of you without expecting return, treating others as you wish them to treat you, being merciful as God is merciful, which means forgoing the right to judge and condemn and rather forgiving what's owed and giving generously even though the person may not deserve it. And in the the passage in Matthew that parallels Luke's, Jesus tops it all off by saying, Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus expects. Be perfect like God. Jesus lays out what I'm sure you'll agree is a pretty... uh, terrifying standard (laughs) of our goodness before God. He lays out a much higher standard than the law had given. So what in the world is going on here? Ian, didn't you just say last week, it's not about our perfection in Christ, but it's about being in Christ and he's good enough for us. Well, what does Jesus mean when he says these things then? Now, it's easy to take these words of Jesus and make them into just another set of laws to obey in order to make ourselves worthy before God. 
But Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, in other, in other words, to bring some sort of new law. He said he came to fulfill it. The law of the Old Testament was designed to show us our own sinfulness. It was designed to show us that we're unable to fulfill God's requirements. But Jesus came and lived a perfect life and satisfied every righteous requirement of the law. And so now the law has been fulfilled in him. This isn't just a new set of laws. This is a description of the kind of person for whom the law is the most natural thing in the world. This is a description of the kind of person for whom obeying the law, doing the things of the law, is a natural outworking of who they are. Jesus is describing his own character. He's describing the kind of person that he is. You look at his life, these are the things that he lived out. He's describing God's own character. So, here's the problem with people who think that God is going to let them into heaven because they're basically a good person. There was a time when someone ran up to Jesus, and you can read it in Mark 10, and it, uh, this person said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, hold on, why do you call me good? Don't you know that only God is good? So if the condition of heaven is being good, and Jesus said only God is good, who's going to be in heaven? By that standard, only God. <laughs> heaven will have a population of one in three. Um, So if we, expect to, uh, if we expect to get to heaven by being good, it's like an application to join the Trinity. <laughs> what the Pharisees didn't understand, it was a Pharisee that asked Jesus this, what the Pharisees didn't understand is that true goodness isn't just something you do, it's something you are. If only God is good in himself, then the only way of being good enough to be worthy of his presence is to have his goodness in us. For us somehow to share in his good nature. That's exactly why we spoke about what we did last week, that Jesus says we must be born again from above into the nature of Jesus so that we can share in his goodness. And if you, if you read the Gospels, you'll notice that you never come across a passage which gives a list of Jesus' moral qualities. Jesus was a kind and patient and gentle and good man. It doesn't need to list those things. This is simply who Jesus is. It oozes out of everything that he embodies. It would be unnatural for him to do anything otherwise. What do you embody? What values, what virtues do you and I make flesh? 
It's a mistake to look at what Jesus says in this passage and just make it a new set of laws that if you follow them diligently enough will one day make you righteous before God. They're a description of the kind of person that Jesus wants to shape us into. The kind of person that we become as we're shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, God is not just interested in getting followers who will do certain things. He's primarily interested in making us into a certain kind of person. Not only that we would follow the law, but that the law would be written on our hearts. That the law would come naturally out of us. Not merely to do good, but to be good. And that's exactly what God promises to accomplish in every one of his children. Romans 8.29, that we have been predestined to be shaped into the image of Jesus. And it it goes on to say, the, the ones that he's called, he will complete that work in. God wants to shape his own goodness in us so that we could enjoy the same kind of abundant, eternally joyful life that Jesus shares with the Father. That's the end goal. If you're wondering why on earth you turn up every Sunday and sing the songs and read the Bible and all these things, that's the point. So that we could have the same kind of abundant life that Jesus has. That's why he says, I've come to give you life in abundance. Now, we said that every person is in this process of becoming. We're being shaped, all of us, into the character of whoever or whatever we submit ourselves to learn from. Everyone is learning from someone or something, even if we're not aware of it. The thing is, All of us, every human being is searching for what philosophers have called the good life, the the way of being that will bring maximum flourishing to our lives. Where are you learning your fundamental values, your commitments, your priorities, what to pursue in order to get hold of that good life that's going to bring you happiness and fulfillment? Everybody is searching for it somewhere and learning where to get it from someone. And Jesus said, we better pay attention to who our teachers are because they're leading us in a certain direction. And not only that, as we live out what they teach, we're becoming more and more like them. Patterning our lives around what they say. Is the teacher that you're learning from able to see the reality of what the good life is? When you look at at that person, does their character show that the outcome of living what they say leads to shaping the good life in a person? Does their character reflect what it is that they're teaching? Jesus says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Won't they both fall into a pit? 
a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Everybody is a disciple. The only question is, who are we following, and who is that person leading us to become? Now, the, the religious life, we talked about the, the, the um, different ways that the religious life, the religious outlook teaches us to become one day worthy to be uh, standing before God. Um, the religious view of life in all the different forms that it takes, it tells us that through our effort and achievement, we will one day become the kind of people that we need to be. But there's an issue with that. No matter what system you adhere to, there's always a gap between the good that you know you should be and the reality of where you actually are in, you know, in your journey to who you should be. The inevitable reality that we fall short. No matter what our, ide- our, our ideals are, we fall short. So what do you do with that? Well, I think there's two responses. The first is to cover it up and pretend that you're better than you actually are, which is what we call hypocrisy. And that the word hypocrite originally referred to a, uh, an actor in a Greek drama, and they would wear a mask called the persona. Um, so hypocrisy still has that same meaning today. It's, it's masking the reality inside with a pretty veneer, a pretty mask. The opposite of hypocrisy, or the, uh, in Greek it was anhypokritos. Um, that's the word that we translate sincerity. Literally not acting, not wearing a persona. So the opposite reaction to that reality that we fall short is to reveal our weaknesses and our need for improvement. That's sincerity. Now what can give us the courage to live sincerely, admitting our imperfections. Where can we turn? Any religious outlook that's based on achieving God's favor through being morally righteous enough to earn heaven will lead to hypocrisy. Because in the end, you can only claim that you've made it by hypocrisy. Remember, only God is good. We would always have a tendency towards hypocrisy in that case because it's always going to be more beneficial to appear better than we are. If not, and you're in that position and you admit your weakness, you're left with nowhere to turn because you've pulled the only rug out from under your feet. You've pulled the only foundation for your worthiness away from you. And so you end up crushed under the weight of your own Expectations. The religious mindset can only lead to either crushed people or prideful people. The root of hypocrisy, because it's based on establishing our own goodness, and no one can live up to the reality of who God is. And it's so easy even for Christians to fall into this way of thinking, but there's another way. 
basing your worth, your, your, the worthiness of standing before God on the good news of God's grace, it cuts away at the pride that's at the root of hypocrisy. The essence of the gospel is knowing that you can never match up to God's standard, but that Jesus has. And he, do, he has offered us his goodness as the way of standing worthily before God. And he offers it to us as a gift. Grace combats hypocrisy because it gives us the freedom to be sincere. I know I'm not good enough in myself. Only Christ can be good enough for me. Therefore, I can be vulnerable enough to admit that, to show my imperfections so that I can actually grow. If you're not in the place where you can admit that you need growth, you can't grow. That's the only way of entering the process of becoming like Jesus. Everybody follows someone. We must follow someone and become like someone. Now look at Jesus. Who better to follow and become like? What do we see when we look at his life? We see a man with a rock-solid identity and purpose, unwavering integrity of character that did not cower before the, the rich and the powerful, a man who treated every person with dignity, a man who ignored racial and social and gender barriers, a man full of love, compassion, joy, peace. Jesus was never worried. He was never fearful. He was never duplicitous. He was never envious. He was always content always able to give generously of himself to everyone. That, to me, sounds like a full kind of life. That sounds like the kind of life that everybody is looking for. And Jesus said that's the kind of life that he came to give to his children. The abundant life. So, how can we be transformed into that, like that? A Christian may be born in a moment, but their character is shaped over a lifetime. Identity is given in an instant, but character can only be shaped. Now, the person that I've read, at least, that has written the best on this is, is a man called Dallas Willard who passed away a few years ago. Uh, he wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines and uh, Renovations of the Heart. Um, and he writes that for you to get any major transformation in your life, there's always three elements that need to be in place. And you can represent them by the acronym VIP. You need to have vision, intention, and a plan. So, for example, uh, take the example of learning Czech. That is a transformation. <laughs> it is. It literally is a transformation of the pathways in your brain to allow you to do something that previously you were completely unable to do. I'm still completely unable to do it. I'm slightly more able than I was a few months ago. But 
The first thing that you need if you want to have the transformation of learning Czech is you need to have a vision, you need to see the value of doing it, the value of getting that transformation, and you need to desire it. If you don't see the value in speaking Czech, how it's going to improve your life, if it's not attractive to you in the first place, well, you're never going to learn it. That's why every, every single person in school in England studies French for a number of years, but you're going to meet no one in England that speaks French because English people don't care about France. They don't see the value in learning French, but on the other hand, you can go all around the world and find people that speak English. Why? Because it's valuable to them. They see the, the, the opportunities that might open up for them. So you need to see the value in the transformation. The second thing is you have to actually decide then to do it. So I might like the sound of Czech, but unless I actually intend to learn it, it's not going to happen to me. I'm not just going to wake up speaking Czech. Um, if you don't intend to do it, make an actual decision. Yeah, I'm going to do this. It's not going to happen. You have to be intentional about it. And then when you're intentional, you get to the third step, which is naturally you're going to find out, okay, how do I do this? What steps do I need to take in order to make this a reality? So if I'm, if I'm serious about my intention, I need to go out and buy the books, take the classes, go find some native speakers that I can talk to and learn about the culture. I may even need to go live in the culture and be immersed. Um, and so you've got the vision the intention, and then you've got the plan to actually make it happen. Now, without those three things, you can be sure you're not going to learn Czech. But if those three things are in place, you can expect to grow in your ability. You can expect um, that transformation to begin to take place. And of course, it's not going to be perfect necessarily, but there will be true growth. So let's look at those a bit more. First of all, the vision. The transformation is becoming like Jesus. And Jesus ends these, these verses that we, uh, that we looked at, actually in, in verse, um, uh, verses 41 to 45. He says, uh, we act out of what fills our hearts our treasure, what we value and most desire. He said in verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Treasuring something is seeing the ultimate value in it. It's, it's valuing it beyond all else. And actually, that is the essence of what worship is. Do you know that everyone worships all the time? Worship is not just something religious people do. Worship is something human people do. We can't help it. We, uh, we worship whatever it is that we most value in life. That thing that we look at and say, I must have that. I must get that. And I will shape my life around getting that thing. That's the thing that's most desirable to us in the world. And we're actually, the Bible says, shaped after what we worship. Psalm 135 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The path of becoming like Jesus begins with worship. It begins with a vision of his absolute value. That's why Jesus says when someone comes into the kingdom of God, it's like a person who finds a treasure buried in a field. And because of the incredible value of that treasure, out of the joy of the possibility of getting that treasure, they go home, sell everything they have, and buy that field. They're not strong-armed into it. They see this is worth everything that I have. A disciple of Jesus is a person that's been so captivated by the vision of who Jesus is that they forsake everything else to follow him. They've seen the incomparable value of Jesus and becoming like him. Now, the question for us is, if you call yourself a Christian, but you're not becoming more like Jesus and just seem to be fitting in with the world around you, conforming in the world's way of thinking and feeling and acting, might it be that your heart hasn't yet seen how incredibly precious Jesus is? That your heart hasn't seen that treasure buried in the field that's worth giving everything? Have you seen him? No one else can see him for us. Is he beautiful to you? When you see him and see how incredible he is, and your heart says, Jesus, I have to have you. I I need you. I want you. That is worship. And if our heart doesn't cry out to him in worship like that, then what is it crying out for? Because it is crying out for something. What is our heart worshiping, if not? So that's the vision that needs to come first. But second of, secondly, you know, a lot of people stop at that first step. They have a vision of, um, wow, Jesus is great. Wouldn't it be amazing to be like him? Um, but never actually make a decision, an intention to follow him so that they can become like him. For some, um, the reason they don't make that decision is they think it's, uh, what's important is just becoming a Christian, which means trusting in Jesus and putting your faith in him. And then, you know, becoming a disciple, that path of following him, that's kind of like an optional extra. That's something, if you're, you know, a bit more serious, or maybe you might say even a bit too serious. Uh, that doesn't make any sense, though. If you say you trust Jesus, you've made him Lord of your life, and you value him above all else, then how can we live our lives as if we can't trust anything that he says? Our actions reveal our true beliefs. Because to truly believe something means that we live as if it were true. Luke Uh, 6.46, the verse after the, the, the passage that we read, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? If we trust him as our teacher, we must do what he says. Or he's not really our teacher. And here's a tough question. 
uh, that I put to myself just as much as to anyone else. Do you and I think, I mean really think, that Jesus knows anything about the life we actually lead? Or do his words, his teachings seem high and beautiful and, and, and lovely, but when it comes down to everyday life, they seem a bit unrealistic, a bit naive even, if we're honest? You can only learn from someone as long as you think they know more than you do. As soon as you think, I know more than this person who's trying to teach me, you immediately stop listening, you immediately stop learning. Jesus says, a student is not above their teacher. So when we read the kinds of things that we, that we see here that Jesus says, are his teachings just ideals, just um, unattainable perfectionism, um, pretty words that are lovely to read, but in reality don't have that much practical value? I mean, turn the other cheek. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. A lot of people would say, Jesus, come on. That's just not practical. Uh, That kind of weak, pushover mentality is not going to get you anywhere in this life. Or maybe it's not that flippant. Um, Maybe sometimes we believe that his teachings are, they're good, they're great, we should aim for them, but actually they're impossible to carry out. Um, That can't be what he's actually talking about. Uh, So, At most, he's talking about obeying in some sort of spiritual way. It means turn the other cheek of your heart or something. Uh, What if G.K. Chesterton is right when he says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. What if we're going about it the wrong way? Remember, Jesus' words are not just a new set of laws to obey in the moment, but they're descriptions of a certain kind of life, a kind of character in which turning the other cheek and loving your enemies and giving to those that even steal from you is the most natural thing in the world, and it would be unnatural to do otherwise. Now, let me try and explain this with, a, with, a, with an example. Suppose um, you're a, a, a runner, and I'm your coach, and... I command you to run a four-minute mile. There's probably someone in the room that could do that, um, but I'll assume most of us couldn't immediately do that if we went out on the street and tried. Um, Suppose I command you to run a four-minute mile. You are morally obligated to do it. I'm your coach. You must do what I say. And so you take the command seriously. You know, you're a good athlete. Um, And so you go to the track. You got all your gear on. And you give it everything you have. You give your absolute best and you don't come anywhere near the mark. Now, does that prove that my command was impossible or does it prove actually that you may have gone about it the wrong way? The ability to run a four-minute mile doesn't just come from the direct effort In the moment, it comes from an entire life of discipline that shapes the athlete's body so that when the time for the race comes, they're able to do what it is they want to do. In fact, when the athlete 
lives that kind of lifestyle for, for a, a, a long period of time, running that way becomes natural to them. It would be unnatural to them to run in the way they first did when they turned up to, tr- to the track on day one. It's become part of their structure of who they are. An athlete sets themselves up to follow the trainer's instructions because they know that unless they follow them, when the day for the race comes, their body is not going to be disciplined in the right way in order to run the race. In other words, the starting point for a disciple is this. They have to be willing to learn from the teacher and commit, to, commit their life to becoming like him because they know that he knows what's best for them. It takes an intentional decision to follow what the teacher says. And that leads to the last thing. That if that's the intention of the disciple, then that's naturally going to lead to the third step, which is seeking out the proper ways, the proper exercises to become like him, to be shaped into that person. Now the goal is to become like Jesus in every part of our lives. Consciously offering every part of who we are, not just the religious parts, every part of who we are, so that he can change every part of who we are. Most simply, I think our life is made up of our thinking, feeling, and doing, the categories that we talked about last week. And God has created each part of who we are. He commands us to love him with each part of who we are because he knows that is what is going to give us maximum life. So thinking, becoming like Jesus in our thinking is, is about filling our minds with truth. What do you do when you want to know something deeply and truly? Well, you go and study it. You find the best sources available, you study them, you become familiar with them, so much that they start to shape the way that you think and give you an accurate picture of truth. So filling our minds with truth in, in uh, the way Jesus did is studying the best sources, the books written about Jesus by the eyewitnesses, the people that knew him and studied with him, including the book that Jesus himself turned to, which was the, the whole Bible, the Old Testament. Um, then, going and spending time with other students so that you can sharpen each other's understanding as you talk about it and, and come to understand better together. We fill our minds with truth by thinking about it, by studying it diligently, and then applying it to every part of our lives. But we're more than a mind. We're also people with heart, soul, experiences of the world. We don't only know things. We, we desire things. We long for things. We love things. And did you know God created emotions? <laughs> he doesn't want us to only have a love for him in our heads. He doesn't want a dry, monotonous relationship with him as we do with a book. He wants joy and love and affection. We should be warm in our love for God. 
This is something that we, just as much as our thinking about God, we need to develop our affections for God. What would you think of a marriage that was purely platonic, a meeting of the minds, with no warmth, no feeling, no affection? Now, you might say, well, they're still married, it's still alive, and that's true, but isn't something important missing? Jesus loved God more than anything else. He desired to please him at all times, to serve him, to do all the things that he likes because he loved him. To grow in your feelings towards somebody, you have to spend time with them, right? You have to focus your... This is what we naturally do when you're in love with somebody. You spend every available minute you can with them because you want that that love to grow, Your mind is always thinking about how wonderful they are, how beautiful they are, how kind they are, how lovely they are. Um, you, You try and do everything you can to please them. Not because you have to, but because you want to bring them joy. It's the overflow of what you feel. That's what we do when we're dating someone, when we want to grow in affection uh, and our ability to love them well. That's what we naturally do or should do. Um, So what does that mean in relation to God? Well, focusing our attention on God's beauty, his qualities, is that's worship. Spending time with God, that's prayer. Conversing with God. Giving gifts like you would give to the person that you love. That's that's what we do in our offering. And and, and as we give to other people to show God's love, we, we give gifts to people to show them, look, this is how much more I value you than the money that I spent on this thing. That's not out of compulsion. That's out of joy. Giving things up so that we can show how much we prefer and love that person. That's fasting. That's what fasting's about. None of these things are are under compulsion, um, but they're out of the overflow of affection. And these are things that we can practice to grow in our affection towards God. But then we come to, th- uh, t- to the doing. Our thinking and our feeling are personal to us. No one else can, can really see them. Others can only see our actions and our words. Without the other two, the actions are just a meaningless ritual. Without the actions, the, the, uh, the thinking and the feeling are not really real if they're not coming into fruition. Everything Jesus did and said showed the world that he loved and valued God. His actions were selfless and they showed God's love. His words were true and full of grace. So, How can my words, how can your words and actions show the world God's love? That that God's love is a reality. It's an actual thing. How can I talk about God's love and actually share this with other people? What can I do practically to exhibit God's love? So, our thinking and our feeling, and our doing. Remember from last week, they don't make us a child of God. They don't make us who we are in Christ. Rather, who we are is shown through what grows out of our thinking and feeling and doing. That's why Jesus says, you will tell the kind of tree it is 
by the fruit that it bears. The growth and the fruit is the evidence of what kind of tree it is. It's just a simple uh, reality of, of the nature of things. The growth of the fruit doesn't cause the planting of the tree. The, the, the growth of a baby into a person doesn't cause their birth. It's the result of the birth. It's the result of the planting. But we have to remember, we're all in different stages. It's not about what stage are you in? Oh, they're over there and I'm just still down here. It's not about what stage you're in. It's about are you growing in the stage that you're in? Because the sign of life is not instant maturity. The sign of life is growth. A baby doesn't pop out of the womb fully formed, mature adult. They're born, they pass through infancy, through childhood, through adolescence, and eventually into mature adulthood. So it's not about what stage we're in. You don't tell a baby off for being a baby. You just expect it to one day not be a baby. (laughs) If 20 years down the road it's still a baby, then there's, there's something wrong. Um, so the thing is, are we growing in the stage that we're in? That's why it says in 1 Peter uh, 1.10, don't, don't sit back content, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Nobody's made it yet. We're all able uh, and called to continue growing. And as we intentionally focus our thinking and feeling and doing on becoming the kind of person that Jesus is, He promises that he will change us into the kind of person that he is. We can't do it alone. We need the Holy Spirit in us. And we need each other. We need true and deep community in order to grow into the fullness of who we are in Christ. And in coming weeks, we're going to be talking about belonging and other aspects of that. But I just want to end with some maybe tough questions to ask ourselves in reflection. Have you seen Christ? Is he the treasure of your heart that your heart cries out, I must have you. I don't care what else I lose if I get you. If not, what better thing will you give everything for? What better thing will you pursue? And what kind of person will pursuing that thing make you into? That's the first question. Secondly, have you, if you've seen Jesus, have you decided that you will set yourself to follow him? and become like him. Because Jesus says that's the proof that we believe what we actually say we believe. And lastly, if that's you, if if you are then a disciple, what practical steps can you take today in growing up into who you are in Christ? How can you Begin to saturate your mind with truth so that you can have the mind of Christ. 
How will you fuel your affections with love for God so that you can have the heart of Christ? How can you show the world God's love through your words and your actions so that you can have the, the, uh, leave the impression of Christ everywhere you go? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we are humbled and um, in awe of your goodness. Lord, we see ourselves in that light and we realize we can't stand there on our own merits. We can't earn that. Lord Jesus, thank you that you didn't come to bring us a new set of crushing laws, but you came and fulfilled the law. And that if we are found in you, we can stand righteous before God as a gift. Lord, we, uh, we recognize that we have that tendency within us to put on a mask rather than show our imperfections. Lord, help us to lean and rely only on your grace that cuts away at our pride, that tells us that we're only good enough in you so that we can admit that we need you, that we need to grow into you. Lord, I pray that you give each of us here, even today, an absolutely captivating vision of who you are, that where else can we turn? You have the words of eternal life. You have abundant life, and it's only in you. And Lord, that as we see that vision, that we would say, I will follow. I will do whatever it takes to become like you, to be found in your kingdom. Lord, and as we make that decision, that you would show us the ways that we can fill our minds with your truth, that we can... uh, fuel our hearts to love you more deeply, that we can show the world through our words and actions your love for us, your love in us that's changing us, and that we would be transformed into who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.